You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Olympic destroyers' relationship status with known threat actors is complicated. The U.S. joins the U.K. in blaming Russia for NotPetya and seems to be considering sanctions. The U.S. Congress considers election security and considers a state-level option. Let governors call in the National Guard. New York's cyber law reaches its second milestone. And no, Edward Snowden has not moved in down the block and bought a two-terabyte iCloud storage plan. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, February 16th, 2018. Breaking news as we publish today. The Justice Department has announced that Special Counsel Robert Mueller has indicted 13 Russian nationals and three Russian entities. According to the court documents provided by the Special Counsel's office, quote, the indictment charges all of the defendants with conspiracy to defraud the United States, three defendants with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud, and five defendants with aggravated identity theft, end quote. The indictment outlines attempts by the Internet Research Agency and the other defendants as far back as 2014 to conspire with each other to, quote, defraud the United States by impairing, obstructing, and defeating the lawful functions of the government through fraud and deceit for the purpose of interfering with the U.S. political and electoral process, including the presidential election of 2016, end quote. We'll be following this story as it develops. Recorded Future has taken a good look at the Olympic destroyer malware and concluded that any attribution to a particular threat actor would be premature. They offer some notes on their code similarity analysis. Researchers at security firm Intezer point out that fragments of code bore some similarity to that used by, quote, diverse threat actors in the general Chinese cluster, end quote. Recorded Future itself found what they call trivial but consistent similarities to malware used by North Korea's Lazarus Group. But this is very far from dispositive proof. As Recorded Future puts it, quote, Before one concludes that these widely diverse threat actors have formed an axis of evil intent on disrupting the Olympics, we need to take a step back and look at our research techniques, end quote. Such similarities are at least as consistent with false flag operations or simple opportunistic code reuse, as they are with conspiracy. The U.S. government, specifically the White House, yesterday joined the British Foreign Office in attributing last year's NotPetya pseudo-ransomware campaign to Russia. This was an unsurprising statement, 
as U.S. officials have long regarded Russia as the prime suspect. NotPetya began with attacks in Ukraine and spread to other countries. The U.K. was particularly affected. Exploits leaked by the shadow brokers, who attributed them to NSA, were instrumental in the NotPetya attacks. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said Thursday, quote, It was part of the Kremlin's ongoing effort to destabilize Ukraine and demonstrates ever more clearly Russia's involvement in the ongoing conflict. This was also a reckless and indiscriminate cyber attack that will be met with international consequences. End quote. Thus, the U.S. seems to have promised some form of sanctioning, probably in concert with the United Kingdom. The U.S. Congress continues to noodle the problem of election interference, in which two different kinds of problems tend to be conflated. One of those problems would be the issue of hacking proper, in which vote tallies were manipulated or people excluded from or added to voter registration databases. That would be essentially a cyber version of old-fashioned voter fraud, the sort that people suspected, for example, when Chicago's Major Daley said during the 1960 election that he wouldn't know how the vote went in machine Democratic Chicago until the returns from machine Republican downstate Illinois came in. The other problem is that of influence operations, the sort of disinformation and propaganda, lies surrounded with a bodyguard of truth, that Russian troll farms have busied themselves with. A number of senators and people testifying before them have one proposed solution, bring in the cyber elements of the National Guard. How that might help with influence operations is more difficult to see, but Guard cyber units could presumably help governors secure their state's voting IT, subject, of course, to the sorts of personnel shortages and so on the security sector is notorious for. Some notes from one of the United States, specifically New York, that will have implications beyond the borders of the Empire State. The state's Department of Financial Services' Cybersecurity Regulation, 23 NYCRR 500, was enacted in March of 2017. Yesterday marked a milestone. Banks, insurers, and other financial service companies doing business in New York, and that's a lot of them, had to certify their compliance with the rules. The requirements of the regulation mandate risk assessments, vulnerability assessments, penetration testing, multi-factor authentication, and end-user awareness training. This represents the second tranche of compliance. The first has been in effect since last August. It gives companies 72 hours to report a security incident that has a reasonable likelihood of producing material harm to operations. As Dark Reading points out, quote, that goes beyond PII breaches to cover anything from intellectual property leaks to DDoS, end quote. The third tranche comes on September 18th of this year and will include rules on security personnel, data access, and data use. And finally, hey everybody, did you hear that crazy Ed Snowden is back in the U.S. of A? We did. There was this email from Apple, well it sort of looked like it was from Apple, that said 999 had been billed to the zany privacy advocate and retired NSA sysadmin for an iCloud 2 terabyte storage plan. Why would we get that anyway? You've just got to click to see more, maybe find out where he's living, right? And what he needs those 2 terabytes for. Our money was on his living at Mar-a-Lago because, well, who wouldn't want to live there? And maybe using the storage for old episodes of Celebrity Apprentice because, well, who wouldn't want to watch that? But alas, it turned out to be a scam discovered by Malwarebytes. Why it occurred to the fishers to use a Snowden receipt as fish bait is difficult to say. 
Would its very implausibility induce people to click? Because how could anything so odd be bad? Or are they trying to weed out the wary and concentrate their efforts on the gullible? If it's the latter, then we have a pro tip for them. Put in the email that Mr. Snowden had become a Nigerian prince. You're welcome. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Zulfikar Ramzan. He's the Chief Technology Officer at RSA. They're a Dell Technologies business. Uh, Zulfikar, welcome back. Um, we wanted to touch on the blockchain today. Uh, obviously, lots of hype about blockchain and Bitcoin and all that sort of stuff. Um, you wanted to uh, make the point, though, be careful about hype versus reality. That's right. I think blockchain has become the new AI, if you will. In 2017, that was the buzzword du jour. It's hmm. continued in 2018, obviously driven by this erratic price fluctuation of Bitcoin and people really trying to jump on the Bitcoin bandwagon, if you will. But to me, I think the interesting point is when you look at blockchain in isolation of Bitcoin, there are some fundamental assumptions about what's required to make blockchain work correctly. So for example, when you look at something like Bitcoin, uh, part of the security analysis of Bitcoin involves the idea that if people were to try to game the system, if people try to do things that would somehow interfere with the way Bitcoin operates, that same effort could then be used to legitimately mine Bitcoin. So there's an incentive economically for people to essentially abide by the rules. When you start looking at applications of blockchain that are outside of Bitcoin, some of those same financial incentives or economic incentives no longer start to apply. 
Hmm. And on top of that, I think there's also an element where people don't look at all the assumptions around which blockchain is successful. So, for example, you know, blockchain is designed for more decentralized and distributed environments where there's maybe no single point of trust. If you start to look at problems that involve maybe a single point of trust or that are centralized, there may be better solutions out there than using uh, blockchain-based technologies. And I think what ends happening is when there's a new concept out there, a new buzzword in the IT lexicon, people rush to the shiny new object without considering whether there are simpler ways to solve those same problems. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when we come to trade shows and so forth, you can look around and see what is the flavor of the month this year. Um, and I think you're right. Blockchain is certainly hot right now. Um, and I think there's a lot of people sort of capitalizing over the fact that it can be complicated and hard to understand. Right. To me, it reminds me of what happened a number of years ago when you looked at the whole financial meltdown on Wall Street, where people were essentially investing in these complicated derivative instruments, things like mortgage-backed securities, without fully understanding the underlying mathematics, without fully understanding all the assumptions that were required to make those equations and, and those types of instruments reliable. And I think everybody who knew the math understood that there was there were fundamental assumptions being made uh, in derivatives that were maybe not that valid in real life around things like the independence of people's uh, default rates um, happening at the same time. And so I think when you look at something like blockchain, I think we're in a similar situation where people have gotten so caught up in, in this whole Bitcoin concept that very few people, I think, really understand how Bitcoin works underneath. And I get worried that people are going to overinvest in these areas without a true understanding, and we're going to see another bubble that's going to completely deflate, and I think it could hurt a lot of people. I've been hearing stories about people who are literally taking out second mortgages on their homes or using, you know, instead of paying back their loans or, or taking out credit card debt just to invest in Bitcoin. And so there's a lot of people out there who I think could be negatively impacted by a bubble bursting in this area. Yeah, so buyer beware. Zulfikar Ramzan, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Jack Resider. He's been a network security engineer for the past decade or so, doing blue team work, securing firewalls, and threat hunting in a sock. But he came to our attention as the host of the Darknet Diaries podcast. In this episode, we're going to hear a story from Jason E. Street. What's up? Jason is one of those guys that has endless stories of incredible things that have happened to him. He's also a Diet Pepsi addict. When you talk to him, you hear him say random things like, It's never drinking the Diet Pepsi that gets me. It's usually trying to get rid of the Diet Pepsi that gets me. Uh, I almost died uh, peeing off a cliff in Bulgaria. While I was talking to him, I was kind of curious to hear the backstory of all these little footnotes that he was throwing at me. But it didn't take long before I heard him say something that I just had to hear the whole story. I accidentally robbed the wrong bank the last time I was in Beirut. <laughs> Jason started out in law enforcement, but for almost the last 20 years, he's been working in InfoSec. He's done considerable work defending the network, but he's also done numerous penetration tests. 
One of his favorite things to do is what he calls security awareness engagement. He's hired by companies to test the physical security of a place. For instance, it shouldn't be possible for a guy to just walk off the street, walk right into an office, walk directly past reception, sit down at a random computer, and do work, and then walk out. He should be stopped, right? The door should be locked, reception should not let him pass, and the computer should be locked, and then someone should notice that he shouldn't be there. This is what should stop him. But companies hire Jason to actually test if this kind of thing is possible. When I do these engagements, they're not red team engagements. They're not pen testing. Uh, they're literally security awareness engagements. I don't mind getting caught. And if I don't get caught, I try to get caught by the end of the engagement because I'm trying to teach the employees how to be better. Makes you want to hear the rest, right? Yeah, me too. Here's my conversation with Jack Recider. I'm kind of scratching my own itch with this whole podcast uh, there was a talk I heard a few years ago about Heartbleed, or the open SSL vulnerabilities, and they gave a lot of follow-up to that. Like they said, there was a fork with Libra SSL, and then there was some additional funding that got added to open SSL, and there were all these extra bits of details after the vulnerability was disclosed that we didn't hear. It didn't hit our news cycles. And I started to realize I'm missing like the whole aftermath of a lot of breaches and vulnerabilities. And so I, I wanted to do kind of a deep dive in a lot of big vulnerabilities and breaches that I've heard of in the past to hear what happened to the hackers. Did they get arrested? Were they ever caught? And all these things. So I, I wanted to know more about some of these some of these breaches. Instead of being at this breakneck speed of the latest, greatest news, I kind of wanted a slow roll of give it to me in its entirety. That was one of the things, but then also attending all these security conferences and hearing all these amazing security stories from people, I feel like some of that stuff should also show up. So it's not just like documentary style topics of, of, of a breach, but sometimes it's just a single person's story of what they had, a, you know, an InfoSec story they have. And your storytelling style is uh, is noteworthy. Um, I, I, I personally enjoy it. Uh, you have a, a mix of music and uh, sound effects and so forth. Uh, did you have any particular inspirations there? So after getting the idea, it took me a couple of years before actually making the first episode. And it was because I really wanted to have that, that great storytelling feeling. Um, so I spent a lot of time researching things like how does Pixar tell a good story and how does NPR tell great stories. And, I, and I, I did a lot of research on, on storytelling just to really try to get that feeling out of, of, of suspense and high stakes and, and resolution and all these things that go into a great story. So it, it, it was a lot of work, but I'm still learning. You're a dozen shows into it uh, as we record here, and uh, you publish every other week or so. Um, what have you learned along the way in terms of uh, sticking to a schedule and the challenges of uh, making these sorts of stories? Yeah, it's really hard. I'm I'm the only person who makes it. So I've got to do all the research, find the guests, do the writing, and, and I, I script out the entire thing. And then, of course, add some music and, and get it all edited. And, and that's a big challenge. And it's I barely make it under the wire every two weeks. <laughs> I, I really wanted to get ahead over the holiday break, but um, I didn't get a chance. So it, it's it's just going at breakneck speed here. And I've got a full-time job, so it's really hard to, to keep up. But somehow, by miracles, I keep making one every two weeks. Yeah, let's talk about, a little bit about your background. Uh, you work in security. Yep. So I've been a, um, a, I would say, a firewall administrator for the last 10 years, um, you know, writing the rules for the IPS units and firewalls. And I've, I do that for an MSSP. 
But um, recently we've been trying to get a, a sock together at this MSSP. And, and so that's something I've been working on too, is designing the sock and building it out and training the sock analysts and building an SIEM and all that kind of thing. And so once I started doing the sock stuff is when I really started digging into threat intelligence and, and red teaming and blue team. And, and, and it got, I got really, really deep into security uh, once I started working in the sock. And, and so why do you think it's important to be sharing these stories with the rest of the community? I feel like when we meet other InfoSec people, we probably have the same question, but we just don't talk about it. And it's because we're under an NDA or we work for the government or something. So we really can't share our problems. Um, it's just too highly classified and secret. And so I really think that that's a problem. I think we should be sharing our problems so that I can hear what it is that you faced and how you solved that so that I can try solving it in a similar manner. So I think it's really good to share it. And another thing about my podcast is I try to make it reachable to more of a general audience and not just people who are super deep into InfoSec. And so when they hear about how easy it is to social engineer something or how dangerous it is to leave your Bitcoins on an exchange, that reaches a whole new audience that sometimes doesn't go outside of our bubble. The other thing is that this seems to be the topic wherever I go. I go to a family meeting, I meet my neighbors, they're always talking about InfoSec and the latest breaches and the Equifax hack, whatever it is. And I'm like, even, even the most common people are talking about security today. So I think they're also interested in to hear how these hacks take place and, and is it hard or easy to, to defend or what are all the nuances behind it? And how do you categorize yourself? I, I, are, do you consider yourself a journalist or a, a storyteller? I don't know. I struggle with that. I think um, I'm just a presenter, maybe a speaker. And just the same way you would you would hear somebody talk at a conference, they, they prepare their slides, they do some research, and they show you what it is that they've been working on. And I feel like I'm the same kind of way. But you're right, it does lend into the, to the journalist world because I am digging deep into maybe 20-year-old stories that I, I have to dig out of archive.org because they're completely gone to find the, the, the information that I want to share. So there is a lot of journalistic work that I have to do. Yeah, it's hard. I don't really, I don't really describe myself in any one of those roles. I think it's a little bit of all of them. Yeah, well, it's good stuff. I, I recommend everybody uh, check out Darknet Diaries. Uh, Jack, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure, and I really appreciate your show. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. 
Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.